Hello and welcome to either the first or the fourth episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts, a political podcast looking particularly at the Liberal Democrats with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host, Stephen Toole. Shall we, shall we tell our possible regular listener, hello Corey, uh, who we are first? So I'm Stephen Toole and I uh, am a long-standing Lib Dem from uh, 1999, that doesn't predate Newcomer, Mark. 1999, newcomer. Yeah, there are some founder members here, probably, but um, and uh, I was a councillor in Oxford for eight years, and I was also editor, sometimes with Mark Pack, uh, of Liberal Democrat Voice. Uh, in my case, from two thousand and seven to two thousand and fifteen. Uh, and I was a member for Crikey, nearly a decade before you were, wow. Stephen. Looking yeah. at us, you wouldn't yeah. be able to tell from the wrinkles <laughs> around my eyes. Um, and being as a Lib Dem keeps you young. Exactly, exactly. That plus the the picture in the attic. Um, and of course, anyone who knows me would know I wouldn't be able to introduce myself without also mentioning that I've written a book. You haven't. I have indeed. Oh. 101 Ways to Win an Election. The available available from all good bookshops. Well, it's available from two bookshops plus Amazon. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's one of the nice things about living in London is there is actually a bookshop which occasionally has my book in it. But I obviously don't regularly stalk it on a Sunday afternoon to of check it out. Not, no. So, politics... We've yeah. chosen a nice, quiet time Funny to do this business. podcast, haven't we? Um, the independent group, what's going to happen? I guess as, as somebody who's maybe not quite the full-on party loyalist that maybe I am, um, it'd be interesting maybe if, if we kick off with your view, Stephen, as to, are you excited by the creation of the independence group? Um, yes. Uh, I think that yes hopefully conveys some of the uh, yes with caveats um, that I guess I, I do feel about it. So, I mean... A couple of reasons why I do um, like it and like the fact that it's being formed. First of all, just the fact that MPs who uh, in Labour and Conservatives have been uh, threatening something for mm. for so long, saying, well, if, if my party just does one more stupid thing, then I'm going to leave. If it just does one more stupid thing, I'll, tomorrow I'll leave. I'll definitely leave tomorrow. <laughs> have at last actually, you know, um, put their... Uh, put their mouths uh, into into gear and done something about it. Mm. So I'm just you know pleased from their mm. point of view. I mean, you could see the weight of um, uh, the weight of uh, all those years of frustration mm. just seeing lifted from those Labour MPs mm. in particular, but also from uh, from the three Conservatives yeah. as well. I, I thought it was very striking. Anna Subri did a really interesting interview with Matt Chorley for the Times Red Box mm. podcast, where it did sound like she just really enjoyed not having to worry what she was saying. Yeah. Which also maybe leads to some issues about how they're going to function, which we'll come on to. But and especially with someone like Anna Subri, who is, uh, you know, <laughs> mm. who I, you know, I, I like in many ways, but uh, is, uh, as many people have pointed out, kind of the a bit of an outlier in the group. Mm. That she is actually quite. Um, I mean, she is distinctly conservative. Mm. Uh, you know, the others, for different reasons. Um, Sarah Wollaston, mm. she was um, came through the primary route, was mm. the first conservative MP elected, having faced a selection by all voters, um, as opposed to all party members, was always someone who, mm. uh, who had an independent voice. Heidi Allen has carved mm. out a niche for herself as, quotes, the most expensive backbencher uh, mm. in the House of Commons, because she's always been uh, having a, a, a justified go at the government over its welfare policies. Um, so they um, are least surprising, I guess, um, but Anna Subri is distinctly Thatcherite, mm. really, in her, in her tone mm. and her views. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just uh, so that's the first reason I'm excited. Just the fact that they've done it, they've taken the plunge. That in itself is a good thing. I think the fact that it's not taken. There's all this speculation over the, you know, ever since Corbyn was elected that there would have to, you know, David Miliband would swoop back in or Tony Blair would have to. I have to say, any plan that is based on David Miliband swooping yeah. back in no, to, to rescue, rescue British <laughs> politics, yes, yeah, maybe. Literal <laughs> international rescue. Um, so, you know, it didn't just take um, a uh, white male politician mm. that everyone's heard of to actually kickstart um, this group. Mm. Um, and I think the interviews, in particular at Heidi Allen, and Luciana Berger have given, um, both in the press but also on TV, have um, shown two incredibly articulate, persuasive uh, mm. people who you can imagine uh, being party mm. leaders and, and, and making a good and, stab of it. And just as a complete digression, it will be fascinating to see what the longer-term impact is of this current phase of British politics in which female politicians are so prominent. Yeah. I mean, there is yeah. a female leader of the SNP. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most prominent Green politician is a woman. The next Lib Dem uh, leader will be a the woman. The next Lib Dem leader, apologies, Ed Davey, will most likely be a woman. <laughs> uh, obviously, uh, you've got Plaid as well to factor into yeah. that. And now the independent group are actually majority female. Plus, of course, uh, we, ha- we currently have our second female prime minister. And I think it's one of those things that probably won't directly have a massive mm. effect, but I can easily imagine in 10 or 15 years' time when people are looking back at the trajectory of the involvement of women in British politics and you sort of think, oh, well, what was it that happened, you know, towards the end of the second decade yeah. of, uh, of, of, of this century that, that resulted in quite a big uptake? Um, it may well be that, you know, we're, we're, we're going through a, a slow-moving but nonetheless quite profound uh, and, and it would be very welcome revolution in British politics. Yeah. So those are some mm. reasons why I'm excited. I guess also there's just something of the awakening of the last three years of British politics and the tumult and chaos and quite depressing nature of it has been that... Uh, I forget who You want more things. chaos. More well, chaos. No, We've uh, not had enough chaos. We need more a chaos. Bit of, a bit of disruption. Um, well, we might come on to that mm. and the impact it's had on Brexit already. But, um, <gasps> You're not but, going to make us talk about Brexit, uh, Stephen. Not, not yet. Don't worry. Don't panic. Um, but... Um, it, it's brought home to, I forget who it was on Twitter, said something that it, struck, it resonated with me, which is that since all the cataclysms mm. of 2016, I'm actually all now about um, uh, democratic norms, anti-racism, mm. sound finances, national defence, mm. because none of the other things are possible without those four mm. bedrocks. And that wasn't something I'd thought of before, but actually, uh, you know, there is something quite fundamental about those four things which, um, you know, is all represented Mm. in the independent group and more broadly within that kind of centrist mainstream um, brand of politics that's been on the defensive Mm. over the last few years. And to have another group, whether there's space for it, whether it crowds out the Lib Dems or other voices, who knows, but to have some uh, group of people standing up for that uh, in a quite explicit way um, is actually quite welcome. Mm. Isn't that quite a small C conservative manifesto though and I mean I guess you might look at for example Gladstone and the Liberals in the 19th century with in some ways a slightly similar mix of policy so I very much the small c is is a genuine small c but that's not the manifesto of people who are um, angry with the state of the world and wanting to change it. I'm going to go small and mainstream uh, (laughs) and because I I think there is uh, I mean let's having said 2016 was this defining moment in British politics and god knows how many um Books, coming of age books are going to be mm. written about 2016. Uh, but let's go back to 2015 mm. when David Cameron won 
uh, a admittedly slender mm. majority, but won a general election on the basis of being a pretty small C conservative, mm. but also fairly mainstream, mm. big C conservative, with a fairly kind of uh, middle of the road manifesto, it seemed at the time, mm. um, within the scheme of politics, of sound finances and uh, public services that run just about. Mm. Now, we can make lots of arguments now with hindsight that, uh, you know, David Cameron uh, and that manifesto. But at the time, uh, and however depressing it was for us as Lib Dems, it was by no means a kind of massive seismic shift in British politics and mm. conservatives winning that election. So, uh, so your point, I guess, it's that none of the things that we think uh, are desirable in politics are possible without those fundamental mm. pillars being in place. That's the argument, I guess. Mm. And, and it's an, there's an interesting parallel here, perhaps, with the SDP, because I think one of the myths of the SDP was the creation of the SDP split the left-wing vote, oh, and therefore the Tories won. Can we which, destroy that exactly, myth now, which is please? The, 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 and the, core, the core reason why it's a myth is if you look at people who voted SDP or who voted Alliance in 1983 and what they said their second preference party was, yeah. had they not voted for the Alliance, more of them would have voted Tory than Labour. So actually, Mrs. Thatcher's majority would have been even larger yeah. had had there not been the alliance. Surge. And there was some polling analysis, wasn't there, in the last couple of weeks, mm. um, saying that yeah, the majority would have been something like 180 exactly uh, instead yeah. of 140. Um, the but but one of the therefore ironies of the SDP was created out of predominantly out of Labour, not purely mm -hmm. out of Labour, yep. predominantly out of Labour. It actually was then more successful at taking votes from the Tories than it was yeah. at taking votes for Labour. And I wonder if actually the independent group is therefore going to end up on a similar course, because although obviously the majority of MPs that is recruited have come from Labour, very much so, if that sort of policy manifesto that you set out is the one that it, one that it goes for, that may well appeal rather more to Conservatives who want something that's a bit more mm. moderate and a bit more competent than what's on offer at the moment, um, and may be much less successful at appealing to people who want a more radical change. And I think certainly people on the centre-left would probably look at that manifesto quite often and think there's not really, you know, where is the changing, so, you know, ta tackling social mm -hmm. injustice? Where is there tackling inequality, et cetera, in that? But all of that assumes... I should say, that, I mean, I mm. should say those four pillars were someone on Twitter. Mm. And the independent group, I was actually looking mm. at its statement of values because I thought we might be talking mm. about this topic <gasps> this morning. You did preparation, and, very professional. Uh, so, I mean, its first statement of values is about decent public mm. services. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, that kind of uh, anti-austerity message mm. which um, 10 of the 11 mm. independent group of MPs have been pushing. Anna Subri, of course, yeah. uh, went straight on television and said, well, actually, George Osborne was a fantastic chancellor mm. and uh, his policies were entirely justified. And she's since sort of rode back a little bit from that, um, mm. that view. But, you know, I think it's fairly clear that it will be that kind of social democrat. And I think even mm. the phrase social democratic is in that statement of values somewhere. Yeah. But talking about the STP actually is interesting mm. because it's, I mean, and you mm. will have mm. probably better memories of this and a more historical judgment of it than I do. Um, but my broad brush perception is that despite lots of people saying the STP failed, it actually lost the battle but won the war. Mm. In that the STP, in effect, was elected as a government in 1997. It just happened to be called New Labour. Mm. Um, but, I mean, do you think that's fair? Or yeah, I, I, I mean, it's always hard to trace the exact sort of uh, knock-on impacts of, a, of an event in history, especially when it's not just what somebody did directly themselves, but how they might have affected what others, somebody else would have done, because the, high, the, sort of the counterfactuals become terribly complicated mm -hmm. then. But I think it's certainly true to say that 
you know, there is a very plausible argument that the course of modernisation that Labour took was hugely influenced by the rise of the alliance and also just the continued existence of a third force in British politics as well. I mean, the Liberal Party had had a very bad 1979 general election. Yeah. Um, there was no you know, innate right to recover. Um, but, uh, but are there, there any parallels you're seeing? But, but, so there, there are some interesting parallels, but one thing that strikes me as being very different is the name of the two. So the Social Democrat Party mm-hmm. and you know, the, initially the Council for Social Democracy and so on, all of those names had a political philosophy yeah. in them, social democracy. The independent group, it, it seems quite symbolic and possibly quite important that they've not gone for a political mm. philosophy. Or in, and indeed, if you look at other new political parties or previous parties that have risen to greater success in the last few years in Britain, so things like UKIP, uh, okay, there's not, not so much a political philosophy, but very much a big political policy in the, in the UKIP mm. party's name. Or the Green Party, there is a clear philosophy and set of policies in, in its name. Now, you can argue a bit over how distinctive social democracy is as a philosophy, but the Council for Social Democracy, early 80s, that gave you a very clear sense. Whilst the independent group, and this partly goes back to your point about Anna Subri, I think, Stephen, is that are they actually really coherent enough in what they believe? And when they were first created and they first used this name, I thought, oh, this might be something really quite interesting because maybe they're not going to try to be a political party. Maybe they're going to try to be essentially a cooperative of independent MPs. And that would be a very... You can imagine all of the visionary, doing politics differently stuff you could build around that, about, well, look, we don't need another political party. What we need are more independent-minded MPs. But, you know, cooperating together is helpful because teams can, you know, mutual support and all that. So we're not going to be a party. We're not going to have one manifesto. We'll all stand on our own policies and our own constituencies, but we'll have this cooperative sort of umbrella that brings us together. Uh, but then if you look at, obviously, what some of Tig have been saying, they do seem to now be on the path actually much more for a conventional political party. And I think there's a real, a couple of really big questions that leaves. One is, what is their political package going to be that can span, as you say, everyone from Anna Subri to, well, sort of the rest of them. <laughs> but that's a little unfair on Anna. But you know what I mean is, what is their political philosophy going to be? And the other is, what are their relations and attitudes towards the Liberal Democrats going to be? Because one of the other things that there's, has been noticeable, I think, in the early days of TIG is there's been a little bit of sort of snide comments about the Lib Dems and sort of, you know, a new organisation getting going. You maybe would expect them to want to sort of carve out their space a little bit. Uh, but, but, but it does seem like certainly for some of the TIG MPs, they really don't like the Lib Dem the Lib Dems and mm-hmm. don't really see a role for the Lib Dems in the future. Um, which means if TIG is then going to try to go head to head in elections with the Liberal Democrats, um, that could be quite that could be quite bloody. It may well yeah. be the Tories and Labour end up the victors from it, but it's it's not obvious that TIG would come out on top by any means. It's yeah. Just, yeah, if you look at who has got the, the councillor base, who has got the membership base, who indeed has got the donor base, notable that TIG hasn't yet been public about any large donors and the Pimlico plumbers chap who has been ecumenical Charlie. with his donations in the past has has been named as a supporter of them but they've not you know landed the sort of the big six-figure uh, donor they've not been picking up councillors switching to them around the mm-hmm. country so it does feel TIG is quite a Westminster centric phenomena mm-hmm. and if that goes head-to-head say with the Liberal Democrat grassroots I, I don't think TIG should assume that they will 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 come out of that successful by any means Yep, um, uh, there you go. So there is the, the, the loyalist. But actually, I tend to agree. Uh, I mean, having been 
and I am uh, enthusiastic about the idea of the independent group, and I like the fact that they've stood up for their beliefs and they've been able to kind of liberate themselves from the shackles of their own parties. Um, uh, I think all of what you say is true in that um, it's hard to see how a collection of independents does function once you get into the heat of an election battle where you are going to have to have answers to those basic policy questions of, well, what will the economy look like, how are you going to run public services, etc. Um, so I, I, I think that's right. I think the evident lack of um, grassroots organisation as it stands is uh, clearly going to be a barrier. And then beyond that kind of philosophical and organisational hurdles that they've got to get over is the deep structural one of the electoral system mm, that we have. And, the you know, even the SDP that did um, get huge momentum with its membership and did um, attract um, a couple of dozen uh, MPs, um, most of whom lost their seats uh, at the election 18 months mm. later, admittedly under um, the circumstances of a post-Falklands war and economic mm. recovery and so on. So, you know, uh, history is ne not necessarily a guide to the future, but nonetheless, it's hard to see how TIG does have a different trajectory than the STP. Um, and I mean, it's interesting, uh, there was an interview with David Owen um, in the New Statesman um, this week, and he says one of his regrets is that the SDP didn't remain independent mm. of the then Liberal Party and um, kind of rushed into an alliance. And he said, look, we were trying to do things new and different uh, and bigger and better and bolder and all the rest of it, and we immediately shackled ourselves to another party, and that left us hamstrung, to fix my metaphors. Um, so I guess lots of the kind of anti-Lib Dem stuff that we're um, hearing, at least from some of the um, Labour members, I guess is just that residual tribal stuff, yep. even though they've kind of said that, you know, we're not about tribalism anymore, and this is a very front-footed step away from uh, tribalism, it's kind of hard to break the old habits. And even if they do try and break the old habits, it's likely those habits will break them, because first past the post is such a barrier to any form of new politics, mm. of any form of creative destruction. The and only way in which UKIP made it work was ironically through proportional representation. The and fact the that European they Parliament were able to come first in the yeah. European elections, um, freaked out the Conservatives, and indeed um, at local elections they were able to get traction as well because it's easier to, mm. uh, to, to mount a, a strong attack on local elections on a smaller constituency boundary footing. Um, but other than that, UKIP on parliamentary elections failed, mm. and they failed to get um, House of Lords members, etc. So the way in which TIG is setting itself up of being that kind of Westminster-focused organisation, mm. and it's still early days, yep. a fortnight in, you know, yeah. they do need a chance. Although, to actually, just I would say but UKIP did pick up at least one defection in the House of Lords, mm -hmm. and in fact, more than one in terms of various people I coming and going over time. Kind of but interestingly, yeah, interesting that TIG, likewise, have not yet, yeah. at least... Yeah. Um, and maybe not yet by the time people listen to this and picked up anyone in the Lords what's, either. What's interesting actually in terms of the STP thing as well is, um, so there is an argument that STP didn't um, form new Labour, STP didn't drag Labour back to the centre away from the militant Benite left. It was this group of right-wing trade unionists that went under the name of St Ermin's group. What's interesting is to see whether or not Tom Watson is that new kind of um, St Ermin's group, whether that kind of right-wing mm. uh, within Labour Party terms group is going to try and bring the Labour Party back to the centre and is Tom Watson actually forming his own council for social democracy mm. within the existing parliamentary mm. Labour Party? Because I think, and going back to what you were saying 
earlier, Stephen, I think that's one of the achievements of the independent group is by after all of these months and months and months of no, if you don't do this, we really won't like it. If you don't do this, we really, really won't like it. The very fact that they've left has now, I think, and we've seen this with Corbyn's position on the referendum in the last few days, has presented a real sense of danger to the Labour Party that if we don't do some things differently a whole load more might now leave as well. So I think the stakes in that sense in the internal Labour infighting have very much been upped, but also the the strength of the non-Corbynites, in a way, ironically, has been enhanced by actually some of them leaving. Yeah. What I don't get is the idea that some Labour uh, MPs are kind of waiting until after Brexit, that they feel they have more leverage um, before the crucial votes in March and probably Mm. again in April and May. Um, before those votes, and so they're just waiting to jump ship. But it seems odd because, as you say, the, mm. the way in which movement in the Labour position has been got has been through these uh, eight Labour MPs mm. defecting and suddenly getting you know between 14 and 18% in a couple of polls, mm. um, which we can take with a huge pinch of salt, but nonetheless they yeah. were enough to get people kind of going, well, if this can mm. happen at this stage, we'd better do something about it. Mm. Um, so I, don't quite, I, I would have thought maximum leverage for Labour... MPs looking to influence their party's uh, Brexit position was pre-critical votes in the House of Commons, not post-critical votes in the House of Commons. Yeah, I, I, I guess their calculation may in part be that if you want the Labour Party to change its view, you need a strong enough voice within the Labour Party as well as that fear from outside. And I guess it's, it's really a matter of guesswork stroke gut judgment as to therefore what the optimum number of people leaving Labour is to maximise the outside pressure without undermining the inside yeah. ability to win the debate. It's worth just maybe picking up on that point about the opinion polls because... I thought you might. <laughs> another excellent uh, political podcast, Polling Matters podcast, mm-hmm. has looked at this in some detail recently. And the point that uh, Kieran Pedley has has made is that if you look at the voting intention questions that mention the independent group, they give the independent group uh, unusually high prominence in the question. Now, in a way, necessarily so, but the questions are of the form, imagine the independent group contest the next general election, Mm. who would you then vote for? Um, So, because the fact that you've got the independent group as one of the answers, you need to explain, well, who, what is this TIG acronym that you've got in the, in the range of answers that you're giving somebody? So it's not a criticism of the choice of wording. Mm. The choice of wording is as good as it could be in the circumstances, I think. But it does mean, as you say, there should be a little note of caution about how TIG is doing in the polls. And likewise, we do seem to be in a situation where the methodology has a big impact. So if you take the latest opinion poll... Uh, which had the Liberal Democrats on a glorious 6%, but TIG on 3%. Yeah. Um, so actually had the Lib Dems on double TIG support, well, the loyalist uh, headline to put yeah, on that. We have seen other polls, haven't we, which, um, slightly contrary mm. to your point earlier, um, have shown most of the support coming from Labour and, to a lesser extent, mm. just um, in terms of raw numbers, from the Liberal Democrats as well. And is, it, is, that, is it a threat to the Liberal Democrats, basically, having another party group, um, well not a party yet, mm. but one we mm. imagine will become a party, contesting mm. that pro-European um, social democratic liberal centre is that something that you think actually yeah. could be a serious threat? It, I mean it, it could be definitely, um, and it, it leads to I think one of the other cu- curios as to how TIG is going to evolve because uh, uh, at first if you look at who, who the MPs are, 
in TIG and their constituencies, you think, well, actually, there's not that much direct head-to-head competition with the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. And you look at those seats and you can see how this might end up being a complementary uh, impact that the two parties can have, however close or not the actual relationships between the parties pan out. On the other hand... So a non-aggression pact of we're not going to exactly. try and win um, the Liverpool seat that Luciana Berger uh, holds. That, yeah. You know, and you know, and you, so you can see how that might work out, except that some of the talk coming out of TIG has been about how their MPs will go and fight other constituencies. And I think this perspective also has a certain internal logic, which is go and fight more Remain-leading constituencies mm-hmm. than some of the constituencies TIG MPs currently represent, except that then immediately gets you into talk about, well, will one of them go and fight, say, Richmond Park? Yeah. Formerly a Lib Dem held seat, very, very marginal in the 2017 election. Will one of them maybe go and fight St Albans, one of the seats where the Lib Dems have never held, but big swing towards the party in 2017, mm-hmm. clearly one of the party's top targets from the next election. So if TIG MPs do go for that chicken run, yeah. I mean, there, there'll be, I think, two problems. One is just that very look that it will be described as a chicken run. You know, we're going to do something really different and brave, and the first thing we're going to do is hot-foot it off to somewhere else. Is maybe not yeah. the best the best thing for the public to know about about them. But also, where will they go to if they end up going to places where there are large Liberal Democrat memberships, lots of Liberal Democrat councillors, maybe on the Liberal Democrat target seat list? That could be, be very bloody and self-destructive. I'm really grateful you've made that point because it allows me to lead us on to Brexit. Damn! Damn. Which, which uh, listeners, uh, Mark, has been desperately trying to avoid us talking about for the... Um, pilot uh, episodes but it does raise the point mm. of um, let's assume for sake of argument that Brexit is done and dusted by the summer mm. as in a withdrawal agreement has got through the House of Commons obviously yep. then there's the whole trade negotiations shenanigans yep. to drag on for years and years decades um, possibly um, centuries but nonetheless the the, the fatal decision of mm. leaving the European Union will have been taken that's yep. my that's the working basis you know which is open to challenge but that's my assumption what then do either TIG, um, which has been formed by, um, as it stands currently, exclusively um, pro-EU mm. Remain supporting MPs, and it's notable that the couple of Labour uh, defections that haven't gone to TIG have been of much more Eurosceptic mm. Labour MPs. Uh, so assuming that they are a pro-European party, what do they do once we've actually left the European Union? Do, do Remainers become rejoiners? And that poses the same issue for the Liberal Democrats mm. as well in particular for the Liberal Democrats because of the surge in membership associated mm. with um, the 2016 decision to leave the European Union and the fact that the party is um, the most passionately pro-European of the three main mm. national parties. Um, what, do we, what do we then do? Uh, do we go full tilt and say, well, we mm. must rejoin, even though that might mean rejoining, uh, joining Schengen mm. and a single currency and all the stuff that is likely to put off um, the persuadables and say, actually, that's a Europe too mm. far for us. Uh, we go back to our old deal, but not to any yep. kind of new deal that is Europe plus. Uh, so it, it does pose a real issue, doesn't it, to both parties in terms of, OK, once you've left the European Union, you can regret that all you like, but the reality is we have left, so what are you saying to voters now? It, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is the odds that it doesn't become all quite cut, as cut and dried, as you suggest, are rather higher than that that there's a, there's a lot that may yet happen on the Brexit front. Um, but even if we do end up in that situation, as you absolutely rightly say, there is a choice about how pro-European 
to then be, or rather how much to emphasise immediate things that you think the government should do in a pro-European direction. Um, so Euratom would be a good example of an organisation that Britain is leaving really for not any terribly good reason other than Brexiteers staked out a red line and it's a sort of the collateral damage from the red line, as yeah. it were. So there's a very good respectable argument to say, you know, even if Brexit goes ahead on the term of, say, Theresa May's deal, let's campaign to rejoin Euratom. Right. Okay. And that could be done. Now, so I think sal- there w- a salami slice exactly, and I think immediately in. the day after starting to talk about now let's rejoin your atom would probably feel a little bit churlish, and wouldn't necessarily go down that well with the public. But as part of a manifesto for the next general election, that seems to me a very reasonable thing. So I think this question about where, how pro-European or not a position do TIG and the Lib Dems take is likely to drive both of them towards being more stridently pro-European. Mm-hmm because that is, will be where there is potentially some space in the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, and therefore, if one of them is occupying that space but the other isn't, you can see the risk for whichever one isn't. Yeah. All of which, I fear, means that pretty much until we get bored with doing this podcast, which may be after this one episode, <laughs> we are going to have to keep on All coming back to. and talking about Brexit. But I suspect we should wrap it up there, because we're not going to manage to resolve Brexit. In oh, just on, one, Mark, in just on. one episode. So, uh, thank you very much to everyone who has listened, especially if you have made it to the end. Uh, you can find this podcast uh, in all the normal places that you find podcasts. So, if you have enjoyed listening, please do subscribe. You'll get our future editions, possibly featuring Brexit, possibly not, <laughs> automatically pop up then in your podcast app of choice and of course if you really liked what you listen please do rate or review us if you know all about these things you'll know it's actually a bit debatable whether that really helps more people see podcasts but it does make those who produce podcasts feel happier thanks very much bye